Da, 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 da. See, that's the part two breaks thing. I like it. We should do this more often. We should have a commercial break halfway through, and then when we get some sponsors, we'll slip their messages in at the appropriate point. So this edition of the Sitcom Club is sponsored by new Mixed Berry Kool-Aid. Oh, you having the Mixed Berry? That's my least favourite. You might like it because it tastes like gravy. Tropical Punch, that's the one to save to last. That's a good one. Oh, I've cocked up the advert. I mean, God almighty, if we're going to do live adverts in the show, I can't go ballsing up the description, can I? So, yeah, we are back on the sitcom club as if no time at all has passed. But in actual fact, I've been in suspended animation for three million years, all for sneaking a little kitty cat on board. That's a Red Dwarf reference, in case you don't get that. Anyway, yeah, we are talking in this episode about the 1983 Christmas edition of Last of Summer Wine entitled Getting Sam Home. Ocho, I'm going to throw over to yourself at this stage if you could give us a brief synopsis of the episode in question. Do I really need to explain Last of the Summer Wine? There may be the odd person somewhere who hasn't seen it. Well, Last of the Summer Wine initially is about three guys who have retired and have free time for the first time in their lives and are not entirely sure what to do with it. They've grown up with a very early 20th century work ethic and they are out in rural Yorkshire so there's not necessarily all that much to do anyway okay three guys acting like idiots only two of whom know they are idiots the third seems to believe that he is their leader and that they are doing something worthwhile getting Sam Holmes an oddity I believe it's based on a novel written by Roy Clark creator of Last of the Summer Wine and in the original book it's the original third member Cyril Blairmeyer by the time you get to this adaptation, it's Foggy Dewhurst, played by Brian Wilde, and the other two idiots are Compost Simonite, played by Bill Owen, and Norman Clegg, played by Peter Salis. But you know all this already. Again, there may be somebody who hasn't tuned into PBS at 8 o'clock on a Saturday evening, and does not know of Last of Summer Wine. And that's, I didn't just make up that Well, we're into the glorious world of the 1980s Christmas special that is the special of a three-walled VT indoors, film outdoors, fully studio-audienced traditional sitcom that has a Christmas special that is all shot on film and has no audience. Uh, It happened with Only Fools and Horses, infamously. It wasn't just infamously. I mean, when you say infamously, I presume you're thinking of Miami Twice. But of course, it was no. Us. I meant the one, the bad one. What's it? Royal flush. Oh yeah, that. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I completely erased it. That. I'd erased that from. My... No, but actually, the really weird thing about Royal flush and actually adds to its sinister feel is that the bits inside the flat are on VT, and yet there's no audience. So the situation with getting Sam home, even before we get to the subject matter, there's always been an undercurrent of melancholy, at least in early. Last of the summer wine. Like I said, these guys don't really know how to fill their time. And they weren't trained to fill their time. It's always been there, but generally it's been people like it for the nice views of home firth. And the nice lines. With this, some of the gloss has been stripped. The way the actors are acting, I mean, they're all professionals. And there is no problem with them actually genuinely pausing for laughs. But because you can tell they've been used to that way of doing things, there's a nice slowness to their performance. And it's all about death. Sex and death, really. Bogenstrovia and I were talking last week about the ups and downs of ITV sitcoms and the fact that they are often rushed for time and don't have enough time to flesh out 
characterization and so on. And this is such a nice example of something which not only has enough time to flesh out his characters, but actually has time to do nice little incidental bits of business as well. I mean, the fact that it's 90 minutes, it's three times as long as it normally is. I suppose you could say that this is the big screen box office spin-off in all but the fact that it wasn't well, in the cinema. Well, that's really what happened. After we had the big 70s, the golden era of the sitcom to film adaptation going to theatres, that seemed to have a second wind on television, on BBC television anyway. It's why I'm intrigued to know more about this talk of Terry and June the movie. Were they just going to do a 90-minute episode? Or was this going to be the getting Sam home of Terry and June? Or is he going to get to the dark underbelly? <laughs> I will confess straight now, I haven't read... The Last of the Summer Wine novel, but I would imagine that it's a lot harder edged just because of where they think these things went. I've got a, a novel tie in with the drama series Public Eye, and there is, let's not frighten the horses, there is a sea bomb. There is a full blown Richfieldism in the book. It's a 1970s book based on a TV series that's going out, you know, mainstream, Thames television thing, and there's language. So I'm not sure about Last of the Summer Wine, but I wouldn't be surprised to find that there's something a little darker even than the television version. I'm not, honestly, I'm not putting this on. I'm not saying this just for laughs. When you said C-bomb, in my mind I was spelling it S-E-A. I thought you were saying, oh, there was this bomb and it went off in the sea. And <laughs> they could do that in a novel, but in the dramatisation, of course, that would have cost far, far too much for them to do, so it had to just be a bomb threat. Gold has recently started running Last of Summer Wine from scratch. And you definitely see in those early episodes, first of all, they're much, much more based on verbal humour than pratfalls and so on. You've got some little bits of business here and there. But yeah, it's also got much rougher edge to it as well in terms of just how the, the three of them converse with each other. The and pilot's so on. interesting because Cleggie's very different to the pilot. He's more cynical. He's less whimsical. I mean, that's, I mean... Cleggie is whimsical. That's his defining characteristic later on. It really is not the same show at all by the time you get to those last few episodes. And then again, I suppose, if a show's lasted 35 years, why should it be? It's going to change over time. It's going to evolve. And I know some people who really, really do not like those early episodes at all and adore the series sort of from, say, early 90s onwards. And I'm quite the opposite. I really like those early ones. We really need to, at some point to have a look at Roy Clark's work and see if something inside him changes. Because, you know, I have no time for keeping up appearances. And yet early Last of the Summer Wine, Open All Hours, even The Magnificent Evans, Growing Pains of PC Penrose, I've just finished the DVD of that. And of course it's going to be interesting when we get still Open All Hours to see what it's going to be like compared to his early work. How formulaic is it going to get? In the case of this particular episode... It doesn't feel like such a big, big change not having a studio audience. To me, anyway. It doesn't feel as much of a change as, say, for example, Bless His House. Bless His House is still as lighthearted on the big screen as it was. I think there's a couple of different things that come into play when you have a studio audience. For something like Bless This House, it just gives that push because it's all jolly fun and it keeps us in the jolly fun. And sometimes, and as this happened with Royal Flush... You need that studio audience to let you know that something is funny rather than unpleasant. It can just sell you on on an idea. With Less of the Summer Wine, which is sort of in-between-ish, 
it's gentle, it's melancholy, it's it straddles the two sides. Yeah, I think you can get by without it. I, the series could have no studio audience for me, and I'd be quite happy, any of them. I think this isn't really the right way for me to look at it, but I, I think just... some people would be happy if it had no cast. It's just... Mm, look at the rolling hills. Oh, look at all that beautiful Yorkshire well, stone buildings. I suspect that this isn't the right way for me to look at it because I'm looking at it with the benefit of hindsight, but also the fact that from, I think it's early 1990s onwards, it is on film anyway. Then looking back at this, it didn't seem a world away, whereas there is actually a little period, 1973 onwards, when they're all VT, I just sort of accept that. I think, oh, well, that's the way that it was done originally. But there is actually a series, I'm trying to remember, it's somewhere, is it maybe late 80s or thereabouts? There's one or two series which are actually on VT, and it really stands out a mile, because it's already been on film for a little while by this point, and suddenly switching to VT feels odd. Because one thing is, the, the later ones, I'm going to say, are probably on Super 16. Getting Sam Holmes, this looks to me like a really grubby, original, good old-fashioned 16mm, well haunto. Shall we explain Honto? No. <laughs> Hauntology, it's a thing. We'll discuss Hauntology in comedy some other time. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's too early to discuss the On the Buses Christmas 72 episode. Oh, 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 oh. One thing, again, I may be looking at this with the benefit of hindsight. Right at the outset of the episode, there is this tiny little sequence, just a few seconds long, of the three of them on a bicycle. And they're hurtling down the hill and they're all saying who's steering, who's steering. Looking at that, I thought that that was almost it was almost self-parodying in a way. It's like, okay, we're, we're going to get the silly bit of business involving the three of them over and done with right from the word go. Here it is. Here they are on the bicycle. Right. I mean, I know they hadn't done the, the, the famous bath episode by then, but it's like, it's sort of like an acknowledgement. It's like, we know that they're going to go hurtling down the hill on something, on one or more wheels at some point so let's just do it now get it over and done with there you go and then it gets down to the business proper i also realized in course of watching this that we the first person that we see in this episode is joe gladwin and yet we hardly ever see him again during the that is itself. weird yes i'm wondering how long this thing ran i'm wondering if this is you know they pared it down to 90 minutes now the last of the summer wine wiki which i've just discovered says something quite interesting says, this episode made television comedy history due to being the first comedy show on British TV to be longer than 60 minutes. Okay, now let me... Okay, I'm not even... I'm not, I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to look at Google for this. I'm going to give us some thought. And my eyes have just wandered over to my DVD shelf, so I'm going to look away from there as well. <sighs> my gut instinct is that that is not going to be true, but at the same time, I am struggling to think of an example of something which is longer. And I guess something's got to be first. Something has to be first, so why not this? But 1983 just seems a little bit too late for that. Hey, you know what just suddenly occurred to me? It's 1983, and they've made a 90-minute thing on film. Poro, Morecambe and Wise, eh? Oh, they yes. They left the BBC, and some people believe it's because of some faint promise that Thames Euston Films branch would make something for them, and in the end... The extended special they made was all on videotape, Night Train to Murder, which is not as bad as people say it is. No, no. I was just thinking, maybe, maybe they could have used their pull to get themselves some of that 16 mil action. That's a really good point. And it's something, again, which is often overlooked. Night Train to Murder is from 1983. 
and yet it wasn't broadcast until 1985. Not only was it broadcast posthumously in Eric Markham's case, but by some distance, by about eight months or so. And that was at his request. When he saw the completed film, he just said to them, could you kick this into the long grass? And that's what they did. And they got one airing, I believe, just one single airing, in late afternoon, just after Christmas. And that was it. But yeah, no, you're absolutely correct, of course. This doesn't at all look out of place if you... If you were told, oh, they made, it, they made it last summer wine for the cinema, then you'd think, oh, yeah. Well, no, it doesn't look like a cinema film. That's one of my little things I've had disagreements with people about. Okay, expand upon that, if you would. Okay. Uh, well, I got a friend of mine who, I'll mention more in a future thing, he's written a book called 50 Stories for 50 Years, all about Doctor Who. His name's Andrew Hickey. Read his stuff. He's good. He's actually said some things about Doctor Who that I've never heard anybody say before. And one time he said something I disagreed mildly with. Uh, which he said that the ITC film series, like The Prisoner, like Danger Man, like The Saint, were a strange hybrid of television and film because the people working on them were television people. Now, I disagreed with that. In the 60s, the film series are generally being made by film people. Those series are, in a way, the grandchildren of the quarter quickies. And you see a lot of the names that turn up. I mean, they're directed by people like Charles Crichton and Leslie Norman. These are film directors. And some of them are directed by people who will go on to be film directors. My further point was that the real weird hybrid of television and cinema comes in the 70s with Euston Films at Thames shooting things on 16. And initially, I mean, armchair cinema, I've got the Blu-ray of the Sweeney pilot. There is something slightly cinematic about it, but I think after a while, time gets less and less and the production values don't, not necessarily fair to say they drop, but they get a little bit more expediency over genius. Until you end up with a situation that I don't think you could ever mistake Minder or Shoestring for a cinema film. They look like the film inserts of the VT shows. Somebody disagreed and said, well, look at the sex comedies. No, I don't think even the cheapest sex comedy, just by virtue of being shot on 35mm and having a second and a half to do the lighting rather than no time at all, looks like an episode of Bergerac. So I think this is where you get into this. This is an odd combination. Now, of course, all television, or nearly all television, drama and comedy, tries to look somehow cinematic. And it doesn't suit everything. I'm not... It's something I'm acutely aware of that we keep going on about three walls and studio audiences. It's because for some things it's the right way to go. And there is too much homogeneity. Even back in the olden days, when generally things are... Three Wall and VT, there's still stuff being shot on film. In the 60s, it's Glorious 35. In the 70s, it's Gritty 16. And then in the 80s, things start moving from Gritty 16 to this nice Super 16. And there was a variety. I think that variety's kind of gone. What was the point? What were we talking about? That's the summer wine. How did we get to here? I said about how if you didn't know any better, you might think, oh, this was last summer wine made for the cinema. I did actually realise as soon as I said that, of course, of one big difference is the fact that it's for free aspect ratio yeah no i'll take your word for that as far as the ins and outs of the shot composition and so on i'm not a big movie buff so i could just really don't tell have you. the time seriously i could make you watch a 1960s theatrically released film and then make you watch an episode of the human jungle i'll show you a scene from each and i bet you'd have a hard time telling which was the movie and which was the tv show yeah I suspect By the so. time we get to the 70s and 80s, I don't think that's true anymore. I was racking my brain there. As you were saying that, I still 
cannot think, and I'm determined, I'm not going to cheat, I'm not going to look at Google, I was thinking Citizen Smith, Christmas special, 1980, was that longer than an hour? I don't think it was, I think it was less, I think it was 50 minutes. So I'm going to have to take the Last of Summer Wine wiki at face value then. Very interesting little stat. Oh yeah, they probably knew, they knew their stuff. I guess so. Um, and that was all coming out of Joe Gladwin <laughs> being the first person we see and also getting a... F- a- proper credit this this is a sort of you have been watching end credits in this yeah where everybody gets a little moment to themselves i really like actually the the structure again cinematic style i like the structure of having the end credits at the beginning i don't like the singing no okay no i know now because i knew you were gonna bring this up right i know you don't i do i think it's lovely i really like the fact that and i liked sing something simple well, this is not the Cliff Adams singers, this is the Mike Sams singers in this case. And the only thing that, that threw me slightly is that I always associate Mike Sams singers with ITV and the Fred Tomlinson singers with BBC. So that threw me a little bit. But yeah, no, I, I really like that rendition. I think it I think it suits it for the fact that it is a long form episode, I think it works. And it would be annoying if that was then the norm. If it was always like that, if it then suddenly turned into whatever happened to Like It Lads and suddenly we've got that every single week, I think that that would get in your nerves. But for the for this one instance, yeah, I think it works. And I know you don't. I know you, you can't stand it, can you? No. What is it about it? It would it, be so bad if they were in Finnish, like the lyrics that somebody put to the theme tune of Emmerdale. <laughs> well, we need to have at some point, we'll have a competition about the most obscure sitcom lyrics. I mean, there are lyrics, am I right in thinking to the Italian George and Mildred? Yes. Well, there we go then. So that's that's a definite contender straight away. There are lyrics to the theme to Up in All Hours. Yeah, you, that's right. You sent me that, didn't you? That was a lovely little... Because was it's actually a pre-existing parlour song. Yes. Now, could you, for the benefit of listeners, could you actually quickly identify what the song's called? Because I know the song... The song is called Alice Where Art Thou. It's on Spotify, isn't it? I don't know if there's a lyrics version on Spotify. There is on YouTube. Smashing. Well, who knows? Maybe they'll reinstate, or instate, not reinstate, but they'll instate the lyrics for Still Open All Hours. Who knows? There are lyrics to the Panorama theme tune. Yes, that's right. Yes, you did. You sent me that. Of course, it's World in Action. That doesn't have any lyrics, does it? Well, Sadly, well, we- no. Weekend World. That has lyrics. Oh, yes, yeah. Well, it's a similar case to Panorama that there are lyrics on a bit that you don't hear on the TV show. In fact, Panorama is an instrumental version of a song from the same film, Phenomenon Femme, I think. I was thinking that when we saw Joe Cladman at the beginning of the episode, it reminded me that we've just been watching him in The Whackers. Oh, yes. And I caught and... a bit of him in Nearest and Dearest. And how come he looks so much older there than he did in anything else? And yet it seems to be one of the earliest appearances of his I've seen. How come Eli Woods always looks the same? No matter if it's the opening night of Time Tees in 1959, or <laughs> if it's in that Cannonball sitcom pilot, which I think was about, what was it, 2002? <laughs> looks identical. Clean living. <laughs> he stopped going to those youth clubs. <laughs> One thing that I really liked about this episode, and again, can't help but make comparisons with episodes before and afterwards, is that I think this episode has just the right number of people in it. Even for a 90-minute episode, whereas later episodes become more and more crowded, and you have... I mean, by the end of it, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way at all, but 
in the last few years, it seems as if every sitcom star of yesteryear you've ever seen is at some point going to turn up in Last of the Summer Wine. And in the last few years, it becomes not just a one-off appearance. It becomes the polyphonic spree of sitcom guests. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And before you know it, there are dozens of characters on your screen and each one's getting maybe two minutes of time and they're trying to compress more and more and more into 30 minutes. Whereas this has... I mean, we can... We can wheel off all the cast members right now. We've got our trio you just mentioned. We never see Cho Gladwin again until the end of the episode, <laughs> so he's quite fleeting. Obviously, we've got Kathy Staff there for a little bit. Yep, we've got John Comer and Jane Freeman. This is John Comer's last work, I believe, and it's not even his voice. That's right. For most of the episode, there is at least one scene I think which is his voice, but for the rest of it, it's Tony Melody dubbing him and doing a very good job. Yes. And Tony Melody is one of those names that you you can't immediately put a face to the name, but as soon as you see his face, you'll recognise him immediately. Lugubrious northern actor. Yeah, all manner of different one-off sitcom appearances. I'm sure he's been in many dramas as well. So, okay, so how many is that we've got so far? What is that, about uh, seven cast members? So Obviously, we, we've got Sam well, himself. We've had Sid and Ivy, haven't we? Yep, we've got... The Sam... Obviously, and his wife. And, we've got and his Linda wife, Barron. and Lily Blesser. Yeah, Taking Linda us Barron. up to ten. Mumsy and Dadsy. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And a few other incidental characters, the, the police and so on. But otherwise, really nobody who's got a lot of screen time. And so, yeah, the, the trio themselves are very much to the fore throughout the episode. The really good thing about this for me is that it doesn't feel stretched. This does not feel like they're having to pad this to get to 90 minutes. I mean, you mentioned about Houston Films there. The second Sweeney film has this... It's not even a subplot. It's just they've got this sudden turn-off halfway through where they get caught up in what they think is a bomb scare in the hotel. And there's this whole business about Dennis Waterman's going to go up to the room disguised as a waiter and so on. It's got nothing to do with anything. It's got nothing to do with the main plot at all. And it takes up about 20 minutes. And you're thinking, this is clearly here to get the running time up to the required length. I've and got this image of him, got this really bad, fluffy stick-on moustache. <laughs> He's not trying to look like Carlos. I am a waiter. Don't mind me, everybody. I'm just a waiter. He's like got a tray in his hand at all times. Uh, No, no, it's not like I'm speaking of waiters. When's room service coming on? Jimmy Petty's solo work for ITV starring Matthew Kelly and I think Brian Pringle set in a hotel. When's that coming on? Come on, ITV free. Give it an airing. Anyway, that was a bit of a deviation there. Anyway, no, but I don't know about yourself, but I don't think that I don't think it suffers for being 90 minutes. I mean, there's no there's no real reason why. It doesn't feel as if... Well, the thing is, it has that advantage of being based on a book, where you can generally, I think any, even a novella, would have to be trimmed down a little to fit 90 minutes. So it's it's probably been trimmed down rather than bulked up. What I was trying to... I wasn't expressing it very well, but what I was trying to get at there was there's no good reason as far as BBC scheduling is concerned why it needs to be 90 minutes it could just as easily be an hour and 20 minutes and fit a slot nicely whereas if it's some commercial television then sure you you can sometimes you can see works being padded out to get to the requisite two hours with commercials whatever it may be but the little bits of business that weren't 
directly related to the plot I really liked. I mean, just just silly little things like, for example, Foggy trying to walk up the stairs and then all the school kids running down and eventually find themselves pushed back to the bottom. Just little things like that, which normally that would get cut for timing just to keep the pace going just little things like that they've got time to do that kind of stuff and yet it doesn't feel as if it's being crowbarred and it doesn't feel as if it's there just to add a few seconds so should we tackle the plot and the themes let us do that so the situation is Clegg and Foggy and Compo have heard that a friend of theirs called Sam is not well they're going to go and visit him in hospital but things are complicated slightly his wife is spending most of the visiting time with him and they want to take some buns which have been cooked by Sam's mistress, Lily Blesser. She's always called Lily Blesser. I don't think anybody just calls her Lily. That doesn't sound like much of a plot. I don't think we're giving away a spoiler <laughs> to actually reveal the, the principal point of the plot because it happens early enough that we're not giving away some big secret here, are we? Sam dies at Lily Blesser's house and there's the whole matter of taking Sam back to his own house to make it look like he just went in the night and then it gets complicated because Lily Blesser decides that she'd like to spend a little time with what's left of Sam. So they have to get him back from his viewing in the garden shed. So it's basically taking a corpse back and forth through home first. <laughs> and I think it's fair to say that Sam's wife and Sam's widow is... She doesn't sound like she would have been the easiest of women to, to live with for some considerable well, this, time. This, you know what? We need one of those feminists that everybody's talking about these days <laughs> to help us with this because... Now, did you lift that line from the commentary of an episode of World in Action, circa 1967? <laughs> it's just the relations with women are not ideal for anybody. And yet, we will get to I didn't know you cared. I don't think Peter Tinniswood's women are as three-dimensional as Roy Clark's. Should we also address the elephant in the room? It's not so much the elephant in the room as the shed in the garden. Because the shed is something that crops up in both series. And I'm sure crops up in many more. I mean, I think just recently Friday Night Dinner on Channel 4. The father of the household, so to speak. He quite often sneaks out to the shed to read his back copies of New Scientist, which his wife doesn't want in the house. A friend of mine actually is in the process of kitting out his garden shed. And I'm not sure if he's ever going to get around to it, but he does have some quite elaborate plans for it. I mean, he wants to get it carpeted, he wants to get heating in there, I think he wants to get Sky Multi Room in there, I think he wants to get all these game consoles set up. Maybe he needs to buy a second house. Probably going to want to get like a nice little fridge in there as well. And probably one of those lazy boy chairs. You know, those nice sort of recliners. It's got slots for your remote control and your game console controllers and so on. Yeah, I mean, basically what he's looking for there is he's looking for <laughs> his own little space that he can go to easily. I mean, yeah, if he buys a second place, then that's going to be too far unless it's literally next door. If he's going to do a Benny Hill. Benny Hill famously bought, or rented rather, the next door flat just so he wouldn't have to have a neighbour. He wouldn't have to pass him on the landing. But yeah, the garden shed, it's its somewhere which is close enough for you to get there quickly without it being an upheaval. You don't need any transport. And yet, it's your own little space. I don't know. Is this something that's particularly associated with the north 
of England round the south? I don't know. I don't know because my dad didn't have a shed in the house or in the garden, but he had an allotment. So oh, if my right, dad had okay. wanted to go to his shed, he'd have to make a big commitment to go out of the grounds. Well, if you're not too fussed about being indoors, then yeah, the allotment can also take take the place of that as well. It's basically somewhere where the... I don't want to be stereotypical as far as gender roles are concerned, but it's somewhere where the, the man of the house can either go or be sent. <laughs> uh, before he then comes back in, then Fora Hart starts putting down all the newspaper for him to walk and put it his hands on It does seem more than just to have the men be quite so long-suffering. I'm just thinking, even in... God, it sounds, it sounds like I'm being <laughs> inverted. Even in sort of southern comedies where the husbands aren't happy, I think there's more of an implication that uh, they have more of an escape and that they're a bit more Jack the Lad. Well, in this, the, the, the guy has his girlfriend, he has his bit on the side, but there's still something slightly melancholy about it. Well, Lily Blesser is a, is a bit of a dry run for Marina, and... I mean, the relationship between Sam and Lily Blesser is very different from the Howard and Marina relationship. <laughs> well, for for one thing, I mean, you were never really can you were never really certain as to whether Howard and Marina had ever consummated the relationship. Yeah, I don't Whereas I was, sure I was absolutely. Was in it for the sex. I'm, I'm, I'm certain they did. I, I've, I've no doubts about I, that at I, all. I think, I think it's just Howard didn't have a shed. Just needed an excuse to get out of the house and be somewhere where Pearl wasn't. Howard just needed to man up. I mean, he really... I mean, I know he wasn't capable of it, but he just needed to get some steel about him. And it's just such a wet blanket. <laughs> and you, I mean, I think that by the time we get to the later episodes, I think that Pearl is more amused at what Howard gets up to than annoyed. Yeah. I think initially she'd be very annoyed about it, but later on, it's just, it's just absurd. It's just, how is he going to get caught this week? I'm having difficulty describing Lily Blesser. I think her neighbours are shocked at what a brazen hussy she is, when really she just wears a little bit of eyeliner, a little bit of lipstick, and that is enough to scandalise the neighbourhood. The standards of hussydom are so low in this village. <laughs> well, she has undergarments which are made of silk, shock horror, and they are hanging on the washing line yeah. outside. That's part of the slight sadness that surrounds the character. She's not the village bike. She's not a hard woman who's blousy and bossy and she's just decided to try and keep feminine in a more conventional way, whereas everybody else, it's headscarf on and scowl set. And yet she's not a one-dimensional character because she's... I mean, That's yes, why she... I said it's going to be difficult to describe her. We could very easy to get her wrong. But there is that thing. She's not a young woman anymore. Well, I like the fact that she's not portrayed as... It's not as if his wife is awful and cold and hard and so on. And Lily Blesser is just perfection. It's not like that. I mean, Lily is a nice lady and very warm, very welcoming. Obviously inviting the three of them in, for example, straight away off the doorstep. And give them hospitality and so on. And yet she has this character flaw in regard to her bun-making ability. <laughs> so she's not portrayed as some sort of domestic goddess. As soon as the buns are mentioned and brought out in the tin, everyone's face drops. Yeah, it's just that the standards of fun are so small. I don't know if it's actually supposed to be taking place in a home firth, or if it's just some kind of any village in Yorkshire. So in Leicester, the Summer Wineland, 
a middle-aged woman who wears a little bit of makeup is some sort of unobtainable goddess in that world. Going to lead to curtain twitching. Yes. She is the kind of character who, in something like Open All Hours, would be spoken of but not seen. Mm. And, of course, we do have the, the Link, who's played by Linda Barron. Of course. Again, Nurse Gladys Emanuel is referred to at pretty much all times as Nurse Gladys Emanuel. Arkwright was never engaged to Gladys. Uh, Nurse Gladys Emanuel is a very strange mixture of... She lies between Lily Blesser and the standard of wife you get in. But then again, Open All Houses in Doncaster. It's urban. It's gritty urban <laughs> comedy. In that she, you know, she has... She has frilly things. Actually, it's interesting, going back to the beginning, you realise that she's only a year older than David Jason, Linda Barron. And in the early ones, it's almost kind of like, is she a bit young? A bit young for Arkwright? <laughs> dirty old goose. But don't forget that Arkwright's, Arkwright's moustache is, is somewhat darker in the earlier episodes. Yes. And yet there is a slight element of constant irritation with her fiancé that you don't get with Lily Blesser. So she, she's... She's a combination of the two extremes of the Roy Clark woman. So what can we say about Sam's wife? She is... She's a bit more two-dimensional. But then again, that, that means it is her role to be gotten away from. And it is just a matter of she knits and she gossips and she is judgmental. A couple of beds away, there's a guy who's being visited by his girlfriend and they're showing tiny amounts of affection. And she's sniffy about that. Actually, it's worth mentioning, because we get a few internal monologues from a few different characters. It's an interesting device. Yeah. And it does have... Uh, one of the Roy Clark standards is two characters having a monologue at the same time. So here, Sam's wife is talking to Sam, but Sam's not listening, and Sam's having his little monologue by himself. Two characters having two different conversations individually. It's a very Roy Clark thing. Yeah. And a few lines I noted down, and... I guess you could say, I mean, I don't know if these are specifically Roy Clark-isms or if they are perhaps more along the lines of the kind of language that you tend to get in northern sitcoms, per se, where you do tend to get very pretty You know what, I think at this point in, in human history, it's hard to separate northern humour from Roy Clark humour. <laughs> he kind of had it to himself a little bit. Well, in Sam's monologue, when he's been visited by his wife in the hospital, and she's looking over at the couple opposite, and he thinks to himself, she's 45 and badly dressed and lovely. Yes. <laughs> when the trio are in Lily Blesser's living room, Foggy says to Compo, no more language in front of his wife. Not bad language or dirty language, just language. And he knows, he knows what he's... <laughs> referring to no when still open all hours goes out I'm going to have my Roy Clark bingo card because I've had a few different Roy Clark sitcoms on the go at my house so I've been watching PC Penrose Magnificent Evans been watching open all hours and I've watched a couple of dramas written by Roy Clark he's generally thought of as a comedy writer but he wrote a I don't know it was a light drama I wouldn't necessarily call it a comedy drama a light drama called Flickers it's about the very earliest days of movie making in Britain. Bob Poskins? Indeed. There's a film called Pictures that I haven't seen yet, and I'm really hoping Network's going to get round to releasing that on DVD. And there's a one-off play called A Foreign Field, which is not a comedy. And that's got Leo McKern and Alec Guinness and Lauren Bacall getting to do some Roy Clark lines. Now, 
even in these dramas, you get the weird little Roy Clark construction of repeated phrases, middle of the sentence, repeated phrases, Auntie Mabel, what would I be doing talking to your Auntie Mabel? Sentences that begin and end with the same couple of words. That's a very Roy Clark thing and characters keep doing it. And there's, there goes, character name. He has something mundane, does character name. I'm waiting for still open all hours for somebody to go, oh yes, everybody's going to say, there goes Leroy Arkwright, he's got his own pinny. (laughs) Something along those lines. (sighs) Well, did they not have that right at the beginning of this episode when they saw the tailor sneaking off with Lady from the Bacon Counter and they're trying to work out, I thought he was into stamps. Well, that was his thing. I can't remember. It's something said in Magnificent Evans that just went off going, oh, I've heard this line before, which is, oh, yes, there goes Evans, everybody will say. He's got a contract with the South Wales Coal Board. But it is that construction. It's somebody saying to themselves, there goes Mooncat, everybody will say. He's got his own podcast. <laughs> Has he seen a doctor about it? <laughs> Am I right in thinking that Roy Clark also wrote the pilot for, oh, no, it's Selman Froggett? Oh, that's interesting. Which was then later taken over by Alan Plater for the mm. at least the first series. Yeah, that's curious. I say the thing. The thing is, when you watch all these Roy Clark things, the characters crop up again, slightly modified. In the early last of the summer winds, there's this frustrated romance between the librarian and the librarian's assistant, which happens similarly in. The Growing Pains of P.C. Penrose, the senior police officer. There's this thing, they're not necessarily having an affair, but it's just kind of like, oh, I can't marry you, I can't commit to you. Which, of course, we get to a certain extent in... Well, we get a lot in Open All Hours, and Arkwright's avariciousness ends up in anti-Wainwright in Last of the Summer Wine. A lot of P.C. Penrose's longings about how he hasn't really lived and his sexual inexperience turns up in Granville in Open All Hours. Getting Sam home is the first appearance of Ken Kitson as a policeman. I don't doubt there's a lot of PC Penroseism turns up because he turns up again and again in later series Last of the Summer Wine because Roy Clark used to be a policeman, apparently. There's probably some strange little flowchart I could make. You could tie them all together. And of course, we, you know, we get that with Potter and the next door neighbours is slightly reflected in keeping up appearances. Oh, he's coming, he's coming, hide! Of course, Potter is an interesting case as well oh yeah recasting heck sorry yeah of course How yes are you we should have mentioned that. it's been a while <laughs> we should have mentioned that of course following the death of arthur Lowe, after the first two series of potter potter was recast with robin bailey and well that's an interesting which changes it it does yeah and not that's also... necessarily to its detriment but it does become a slightly different show because robin bailey is not a pompous little man he's quite commending where is Potter set geographically? I would say it was home county suburbs myself. Yeah, yeah. And just on the subject of Roy Clark's shows, you mentioned about if Network ever get around to releasing bits and pieces, could I put in a request for Network to release Man's Best Friends, which was Fulton Mackay, written by Roy Clark, and I think it was originally for Channel 4, and then repeated on ITV later on. And that's one which I've just not been able to track down anywhere. I can't even find a clip of it on YouTube. And I'd really like to see Philip Mackay with Roy Clark's dialogue. I mentioned before about I liked the fact that there was a nod to the physical humour right at the outset with him hurtling down the hill on the bicycle. You could probably make an argument for this episode being something of a transition piece. Because... If you do watch the early episodes, there are very, very long scenes set in Sid's Cafe or the library, for example, 
sometimes a hairdresser, and it's principally verbal humour. And then if you take an episode from what you probably, I wouldn't necessarily call this the peak in terms of my own personal enjoyment, I prefer these sort of initial 10 years, but in terms of peak interest, peak viewing figures and so on, you'd probably say something along the lines of mid-80s through to mid-90s. You've got more set pieces, you've got more things like I mean, the one everybody gives the example of, and it's been parodied so many times, Free Men in the Bath, and you've got more and more of Foggy's harebrained schemes, which quite often will involve some sort of mechanical device, and they'll The one that sticks in my mind of... is when they get some radio units, some ex-army walkie-talkies, but I think there's a massive backpack that goes with them. I just remember his call sign being Sunray Major. Again, this is harking back to what we are talking about last week with the development of ITV sitcoms as a whole. We've got this nice little hybrid between a lot of dialogue and yet we've also got the farcical element with them getting Sam back and forth, back and forth and so on. So you could probably say that this... Would you say this episode marks a turning point in terms of the slight shift towards more farce-based physical humour? I'd have to watch the series immediately after this. To be sure, we'd have to watch all of Lester the Summer Wine. So in the series that immediately follows the Christmas special, you've got the introduction of Crusher, Ivy's nephew, taking the place of John Comer in the cafe, says cafe. And my memories, because I don't think he's in it for too long, is he maybe one or two series that that character is in? My memories of him were that there was more sort of physical comedy. I mean, just in terms of his size, he's quite imposing character. My memories of that are there's a bit more in terms of you might see them running into the cafe with bits and pieces of Wesley's van or something that they're trying to soup up that they're trying to you know make it go at twice its normal speed or something something silly like that more things involving Compo perhaps being dragged with a pair of skis on his feet down the hill with the motor in front of him just that's my memory right or wrong that's my memory of last of some ways towards the the end of the eighties for example. Like I say, we th- we're going to have to watch all of Leicester the Summer Wine. And I'm not sure I have that long left. <laughs> well, I think that we will probably at some point come back to Leicester the Summer Wine and take another representative episode. Perhaps another Christmas special for maybe 10 years down the line. But certainly in the late 80s, you start to see two things happening with more frequency. One is that the cast is getting bigger and bigger. So we've not even seen Howard Marina at this point, and they're of course going to become mainstays. We haven't yet seen the appearance of Fora Hard. Uh, later on we have Barry and Glenda, we have in addition to Joe Gladwin we've got Fora Hard's husband in there, Wesley, he's in there you've got Jean Alexander coming in after she left Coronation Street, you've got Smiler, Stephen Lewis you've got a huge, huge cast of people, even by the end of the 1980s, I mean this is around about the same time that Brian Wilde leaves for a little while and is replaced by Michael Aldridge as Seymour. Brian Wilde comes back in the early 90s. And yeah, by that point, yeah, you've really got an extended cast of characters. And you know that can work to an extent because it gives you then a lot more people in terms of being able to focus on one particular character per episode. And it lightens the burden from the principal trio. And that, of course, that's something that comes more to the fore later on when, say, Peter Salas and... Bill Owen and then later on of course you've got Frank Thornton as Truly of the Yard when they're doing less in terms of just straightforward 
physical humour. They may be there as observers to the main plot of the piece. I mean, later on, of course, you've got people like Trevor Bannister coming in. You've got Christopher Beanie, who's in for a little Russ while. Russ Abbott. Russ Abbott, yeah, of course. And keeping up appearances, Link, Josephine Chusen. And, um, of course, we're going full circle then, because, of course, we started in the library all the way back in 73, and then, of course, the library's a regular port of call in the 2000s. Burke Quauk, of course. Brian Murphy is in there. Basically, every British actor who hits 70 is immediately given part in Lester the Summer Wine. Yeah. And, like I say, I mean, I know people who really, really like the later episodes and people who are really annoyed when the series was cancelled in 2008. I'm not a big fan of the later episodes purely because I actually find them rather odd in terms of the structure, in terms of the fact that you don't really have a straightforward beginning, middle and an end with those episodes. They just they seem more a continuation of what's gone on before. You know, you each character has their two minutes, has their little bits of dialogue and so on. And then it just sort of naturally comes to conclusion for that episode and then so on. Whereas this particular nineteen minute special, this is really, really tightly formatted, there's no excess and I mean I'm not gonna give away any spoilers, but it's got a nice payoff, hasn't it, in terms of the conclusion. Do you have a favourite period of Last of Summer Wine overall? I mean, I know obviously, like myself, not seen every episode there are many, many of them, but... No, I don't I, or, or I'm more likely to say the first half, or the first third than to sort of say, oh yeah, series four and five. Just those, no others. What do you think of um, Michael Bates in the role of Blade Meyer? I find him, he's quite an overbearing character he's... I think he works for that though I can kind of see why Foggy became the third member though I don't know sometimes Foggy's lack of self-awareness gets really annoying to me in a way that Blair Meyer's self-importance doesn't I have just been watching Brian Wilde in White's Watchdogs <laughs> but no hang on <laughs> which of course is show that, say he... that very often you didn't even hear people <laughs> say that at the time it was on well this was to show that he left last of summer wine to do and that's why Michael well, wasn't it because in. he and Bill Owen just got on each other's nerves too much? I think that there was a bit of tension there, yeah. I Which mean, I believe was the same between Bill Owen and Michael Bates. As I understand it, Michael Bates was quite conservative and Bill Owen was quite a strong socialist. And so I think that they had quite heated conversations, not necessarily arguments, but quite heated conversations in the canteen. And eventually their producer said to them, look, just avoid the subject. Just don't have these conversations because you need to get on for the good of the show. And it looks like that largely worked out. And I don't know what the sort of political spectrum makeup was between Brian Wilde and Peter Salas and Bill Owen, but I mean, I guess if things could, could have be been too bad between wrong, them. But I wasn't in the impression that, again, they just didn't get on. You do get that rather bizarre episode. Again, this is another sitcom club podcast in the making awkward exits for characters particularly if the actor who portrays them isn't involved if you have a look at the 1997 Christmas special of Last of Summer Wine it's the episode which introduces Truly of the Yard and in terms of part one of this podcast we were talking about new characters coming in and so on it's very well done I mean you've got a social situation you've got this stag do 
which serves as a nice way of getting them all around the table so they truly can tell his story. And yet it doesn't feel as if he's suddenly been pushed into the mix. Within a short space of time, it's just as if he's always been there. But as the story goes, Foggy has had one too many at the stag do and spends most of the time either underneath the table at the do or later on he is simply lying on his side, face away from the camera and the- being escorted backwards by Jack Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> There is no excuse for that because Jack Douglas was actually there. I can understand if Jack Douglas had left <laughs> suddenly and they had to write about the episode, but he was in it. Again, we'll need to start a short list of situations where you try and pretend that somebody is in an episode when they quite clearly aren't. Oh, you've just missed them. So just a second ago, you just missed them. You just went out the door. So yeah, have a look at the uh, 97 episode. It's, it's worth tracking down for that. But, yeah, no, I was saying about White's Watchdogs. It's a nice little series that, I don't know, should have worked. It's got Brian Wilde, Trevor Bannister together in it, and they're both very good at what they're doing. And I'm quite... I mean, I've only seen the first two episodes so far, but I haven't quite yet put my finger on what what it is that's not working with this. But, for whatever reason, didn't take off. There was only one series of that. You also see Brian Wilde turn up in a few other places where he turns up. This is a show that everybody's forgotten about. Dennis Lawson, the Kick Curran radio show. Ah. Quite a, a cast in that, because the boss of the station is played by Brian Wilde, and amongst his fellow DJs is Clive Medicine. Who's on Twitter. Indeed he is, yeah. And, yeah, it is, I think it's Andy Hamilton, Guy Jenkin. And that's a series, again, that's just sort of been lost to the sands of time. It was one that Again, started off on Channel 4, same as Man's Best Friends, Channel 4, repeat on ITV. And just one that's sort of unfortunately been forgotten about. But there are a few copies in circulation, taped off, I think, UK Gold from back in the day. I do have a wee note on here. I've simply put down, I would have liked to have seen Bill Owen in more parts over the years. I don't know what you think about that old show, but I'm thinking in terms of, say, his appearance in Like the Lads, where he's playing a very different character. Yeah, Less of the Samoan did kind of eat his career, didn't it? It's the part that now defines him. And it's not so much talking about a Harry H. Corbett situation where he's played this part and become stereotyped and then trying to shake it off and wanting to lose that attachment in years later. I mean... He was in Last of Summer Wine right up until his passing. And as far as I understand, I don't think he ever had any qualms about continuing with the character. I think he was quite happy with it. Alan Hale Jr. syndrome. Alan Hale Jr. played the skipper in Gilligan's Island. And as, as far as I know, after a certain point, was quite happy to wear the hat and be addressed as skipper. Opened a restaurant, I believe he could be seen wandering around in, in his skipper gear and was happy to have photos taken and... And fair enough. He's got his little part of entertainment history. Some people would be frustrated by typecasting and some people would welcome it. And the one person who... I don't know. I don't know what you would say was the role that he's most famous for now. Peter Salas. I think... I don't have Google in front of me right now, so I may be wrong in this, but I've got this strange recollection that the original Wallace and Gromit was... For start, it wasn't called Wallace and Gromit, the actual episode. It was called A Grand Day Out. And Peter Sellis was the voice of Wallace. And for the first few years, that was it. It was a nice little film. It was made, it was shown, I think, on Channel 4. Probably 
got inserted into the schedules each year, like the Snowman, and then suddenly when the sequel came along, sort of mid-1990s, it just exploded, it just took off, and before you knew it, they were everywhere. And you've got a new episode coming on every year, and you've got a new film coming out, and so on. And nowadays, of course, no doubt about it, if, you've, if you're in possession of the Christmas Radio Times, which you might be right now, almost certainly every single thing, every Walls and Gromit instance has ever been, will be across the, the 14 days. So I guess to a whole new generation, and even outside of the United Kingdom, if people have maybe never even seen Last of Summer Wine, never actually seen Peter Salas, they all know his voice. I'm trying to think of other roles that I've seen Peter Salas in, and the only ones... He's in an episode of Public Eye, as is Michael Bates. What, the same one? No, sadly. Ah, damn. The only Peter Salas appearance that I can think of off the top of my head is still Last of Summer Wine related, because of course... Was he not his own father in First of the Summer Wine? Yes, yeah. Oh, that'd be that'd be an interesting one to talk about sometime. Because I do remember people saying at the time, well, you know, obviously we can't make Last of the Summer Wine forever, so First of the Summer Wine will be there to take over. <laughs> Actually, there's an episode of Public Eye I have to make you watch because it's got Tony Melody and Michael Bates and one of the cast of Police uh, in the comedy Christmas episode of Public Eye. The comedy Christmas episode of Public Eye? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds intriguing. So anyway, just something else I've noticed that in my notes that I didn't mention. I've got here B-movie pacing. As you know, I've been watching a lot of British B-movies. And one thing I really like about them, as you know, we're saying on about, could this be less of the sum wine the movie? The thing I like about British B-movies is they just start. They just start with the absolute minimum of setup. And this you could show to somebody completely independent of Last of the Summer Wine. And it just starts, look, here are three guys who wander around a Yorkshire village. You don't need to know any more than that <laughs> to enjoy the, the episode. And also, this is a Christmas special, isn't it? With that whole thing of the non-Christmassy Christmas special. Your Christmas present is a special extra-length edition of your favourite sitcom. But hey, we're not stupid. We're going to make it in such a way that it can be repeated out of season. Ever Decreasing Circles has its extra-length episode conclusion. They do have a Christmas episode that's Christmassy, but they also have the non-Christmassy Christmas special. Well, indeed, it's a, a trick that is utilised not just by sitcoms, but also by Lens Tim Palmer. In fact, I, th- I think the, the Ever Decreasing Circles non-Christmassy Christmas special has to take place at the height of summer. Did I send you something on YouTube which was Russ Abbott's Christmas Madhouse, which was re badged as Russ Abbott's Summer Madhouse <laughs> so they could repeat it in July. <laughs> Lovely piece of work. So Last of Summer when it's a show which I think I've probably grown into as the years have gone by. It was a show that my parents would have watched and... That's because you're not from my... Yorkshire. Well, it's, I don't doubt somebody would say, I am from Yorkshire and I've never liked it, but to me it was, it was everyday... Well, not everyday life in the sense that I'm not from a village, I'm from a town, but it was very familiar. So I think the only thing I haven't really covered is we're talking about the lack of happy marriages. Sid and Ivy, they're doing okay. Clearly, Sid is nagged off the face of the earth, but Ivy's a very interesting character in that she's justified. <laughs> Sid has it coming, really, for hanging out with that bunch of idiots. Poor old Wally Batty, I think, needed to be looked after really more than he was, but now nah, Sid's only got himself to blame if Ivy's mad at him. And of course, without giving too much away, it is Ivy who saves everybody's bacon. She could really have landed the guys in it, and she doesn't. Well, as it is a festive season, the schedules on gold are a little bit different at the moment, but just looking at my programme guide here, it looks like there are some mornings when there are three back-to-back episodes of Last of Summer Wine. Ordinarily, on gold, you get two episodes of Last of Summer Wine twice daily. So, if you want to check out 
the adventures of Foggy Compo and Clegg, then get yourself to gold and uh, you'll see them every day. A couple of last minute bits of business. Thank you to Laps Cat who tweeted us with regard to last week's episode on Cowboys. He said, Hurrah, I vaguely recall Cowboys, but I think I may be conflating it with Valentine Park. Need to add Valentine Park to the list. We need to do a Ken Jones special, do we not? <laughs> a horrible eye covered the Wackers. That's true, yes. Okay, let me think now. Porridge, the Whackers, the Squirrels. Well, I do promise, I'm going to put my foot down here. I do promise that in the new year, we're going to be going through a lot more listener requests. And I've kept a list of everything that everybody's asked to have covered. And at least some of them are going to get done. Well, one thing I'm just going to briefly touch on before we wrap up. You may well have in your possession the Christmas listings, Christmas radio times and so on, because they've just come out nationally. So if you don't want to hear any spoilers about what's on at Christmas, then stop listening to the podcast now. We will not be offended. If you're still listening, then a couple of things that just caught my eye because they've been tweeted all over the place and so on. As far as Christmas sitcoms are concerned, Mrs. Brown's Boys is slap bang in the middle of the Christmas Day schedule at half past nine on BBC One, and I believe that's the first of two episodes over the season. Still open all hours, we've obviously been talking a lot about that on the podcast over the last few weeks. That is on Boxing Day. Boxing Night, 7.45 on BBC One. One other thing that just caught my eye there as well is that there is a curiously titled little thing called Len Goodman's Perfect Christmas on Boxing Night on BBC One at 9.15. I'm given to understand that this is something along the lines of a little seasonal selection box. So you might remember, for example, about 20 years ago or so, in the 90s, they used to have a BBC light entertainment show called All the Best for Christmas, which was presented by different people each year. Mike Yarwood one year, Brian Conley and Ronnie Corbett presented it later on. And as I understand it, this is a similar sort of thing with lots of little choice clips. So there might be some little sitcom rarities and so on in there. I mean, you could probably reel off straight away all the things that are going to be in there in terms of all the sitcom moments that you remember. But hopefully there'll be one or two, perhaps, one or two rarities in there as well. So the Christmas guides are now out throughout the whole of the UK and fingers crossed I'm hoping to see a few things pop up there. I mean it's I'm going to sound like an old fart now Ocho but it gets earlier and earlier every year doesn't it? And I've already seen my fill of Christmas specials before it even became December. No! And I've had a mince pie or two. You've seen your fill of Christmas specials? No, 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 let me correct that. I've not had my fill of Christmas specials, but I've already had my quota, so to speak. I've already seen a lot of Christmas specials. You've had specials. the recommended yearly allowance already. Yes, indeed. Yeah. That's not uh, going to stop I've still got, still got a ton of them. I just stumbled across a whole night. load of Oh, American. last night I watched George and the Dragon Christmas special. Okay. Smashing. So on the, the network disc, yeah? Yeah. Well, so far, I haven't been going through them one by one. Please, sir, does not work. Not on its own terms... Because it doesn't exist on its own terms. You need to have watched all of Police up until that point for it to have any real emotional payoff. Two's Company was a drag, despite having Geraldine Newman of Ever Decreasing Circles and Mappalucia fame. But I didn't, didn't really enjoy that at all. George and the Dragon, just fine. Bobbed along nicely, helped by the fact that apparently Peggy Mount and Sid James got on famously. Youth of Joyce was in it. Youth Joyce was kind of playing the Dolly Bird figure to a certain extent. George's latest squeeze that week. So, but I've still got more Christmas specials to plough through. So all the things that you've just mentioned, they're on the network classic ITV 
Christmas comedy pack, which is four. And the DVDs. the reason I've kind of semi-selected off by saying this was a good, I am saving the ones I'm fairly sure I like until a lot closer to Christmas. When are you getting to Duty Free? Tonight. I'm not. I'm not gone on Duty Free. I, I watched it at the time. I'm guessing there's nothing else on in that time slot <laughs> that interested me. Well, I'd be interested actually to hear people's recommendations for Christmas sitcom. DVDs. So if there's anything you've got in your collection or anything that you are thinking of getting or think that you might be getting as a present uh, just let us know. Tweet us at the Sitcom Club. Also you can get in touch with us at feedback at sitcomclub.com and at the website sitcomclub.com you can find all our previous episodes via iTunes or the straightforward XML feed for your podcatcher. One thing by the way I meant to mention and my eyes just popped over accidentally there when I was looking through all those Christmas shows 9.45 Christmas Eve on BBC2 is a new documentary about Mel Smith so I'll certainly be setting the uh, Sky Plus for that and hopefully there'll be a, a good wedge of Colin Sandwich in there amongst other things. Before we talk about next week we'll talk about the week after that because we'll be out on the 24th Tuesday with our Christmas podcast and that will be ourselves, Bogdanstrovia, DCT playing the On The Buses board game. Still not quite sure how this is going to work audio format but what the hell, nothing ventured nothing gained. But next week what are we talking about? Next week we're talking about the mid-90s revival boom when the BBC started to panic at the end of Only Fools and Horses and tried to bring everything back in the hope that something would stick. So we've got The Legacy of Reginald Perrin, The Liverbirds, Doctor at the Top, and we will be looking at why they didn't work, because they didn't. I think those are all one series, aren't they? And that's it. They are indeed. Yes, indeed. Yep, they're all one series. And all achieved a fair bit of publicity, as you'd expect, for any well-loved series coming back. I'm actually going to do a little bit of digging in the newspaper archives, because I'm interested to see the critical reception. I've got a sneaky suspicion that I'm going to see some sniffy articles, possibly even from before those shows went out, saying, oh, this isn't a good idea, I should be bringing this back, and so on. Pretty much exactly the same articles that we're now seeing with regard to Monty Python. But, who knows? We don't know what it's going to be like until it's done. Well, you know, so. I'm not. Do you know what the really exciting Python related news for me is? New complete and utter history of Britain sketches on the forthcoming Blu ray. Yep, that, you didn't, that's not, that's not a slip That of excites me Blu-ray. more than the Python reunion. It's a Blu ray release of the complete not history of Britain. With, with a few new sketches, which apparently was just. They had the film sequences from the Mostly Lost series. For those of you who haven't bothered to, too long, didn't read on the article that's going round. Some of the film sequences are missing vital sound effects. And also, they didn't really work just kicking in as sketches that were supposed to be linked. The original series that there's Colin Gordon doing linking material. So apparently it was decided, well, let's get the, you know, let's tidy up the film sequences, put them together, and Palin and Jones will do a bit of linking material so we can ease into them. And apparently everybody got a bit carried away and it became... New, complete and utter history of Britain sketches. That excites me more than a Monty Python reunion. For all we know, they might slip a couple of history sketches into the Python stage Oh, show. I could only wish. Well, I mean, they've read Well, I went to see the Goody stage show, and they went through their personal histories, which meant they're doing stuff from Broaden Your Mind. The idea that Monty Python would go on and sort of say, well, yeah, we're just going to take you through how Monty Python came into being. So, yeah, we're going to be doing the parrot sketch, but first, let's do some stuff from Twice a Fortnight. That would excite me. I do know at least two people who are going to the Python 
shows at the O2. And hopefully we might get uh, a first-hand report from them. We are going to be looking at revivals. Speaking of Blu-ray, by the way, because for those who don't know, the reason they're able to release Blu-ray completely out of history is because, you know, sketches are principally on film, which can be remastered to high definition, which can do with VT. Getting Sam home. That's all on film. Blu-ray release. You'd have to have the original stuff. It's no use if it's been since transferred to VT, is it? No. And that is a problem which I believe affects a few... It's a little bit like you occasionally get Doctor Who fans saying, hey, Paul McGann movie, get it out on blue. It was shot on film, edited on VT, which also means all the effects were done on VT as well. So all the effects were added in standard definition. So there is no single film print. It's something that became fashionable in the 90s and has kind of messed things up a bit these days. There are a few cases, I think, where the film assets may no longer exist. So you have a film series from more recently is locked in standard definition. Something a lot older is absolutely ready to go. High definition, like I say, the Sweeney in HD. And that's 16. And of course, Professionals, which is being primed for a Blu-ray release by Network at the moment. Ah, yes, yeah. Something the age of getting Sam home is probably back from the days of telecine. But it's, it's a matter of whether there's a high enough quality 16mm asset out there. I would be definitely down for getting Sam home Blu-ray. The principal question is, does the original film of On the Bus's Christmas 1972 exist? Because if it does... Did it then? I don't think it did screw, then. I think screw the HD. I want, ultra, I want Ultra. I want 4K of that. <laughs> Get it done. But we'll, we'll be talking about that a lot more in a fortnight. Anyway, Ocho, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a marathon session for ourselves and it's been lovely chatting sitcom as always and in the meantime we will be with you again soon on the sitcom club